Good morning. <clears throat> Let's try that again. Good morning. morning. Alright, there we go. Uh, Charles, Pastor Charles Spurgeon once said that the, uh, the more people I share the gospel with, the more of the elect that I find. So, here's the good news. The more that we spread the good news to the lost around us, the more we get to do this. Right? So, go do that. Kids, off you go. I didn't forget about you. You thought I forgot. I didn't, Cal. You thought I did. You did, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't. I wanted them to hear that. All right. Let's pray for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And as we open it up, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May your word speak and may we listen and be changed by the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So God has been gracious to me in a thousand ways, uh, but perhaps one of the ways in which he has been most gracious is by having me have been raised in a Christian home. My mom, who's here this morning, taught me the gospel when I was being raised. She spoke it to me, and so it was pretty easy for me to identify myself as a Christian very early on. And I realize, though, that's not true for some of you, maybe a lot of you. But I grew up listening to Christian music and going to Christian camps things of the like. Uh, Even when I was able to drive a car on my own, I would still make the decision to go to church on my own, even though I made a lot of unchristian choices throughout the week. It was very comfortable for me. But something happened when I was about 18 years old. Uh, I grew up right outside of Jacksonville, Florida, where my dad worked as a credit sales manager for Snap-on Tools. And we moved from Jacksonville, Florida, up to right outside of the suburbs of Atlanta when I was 18 years old. And so everything sort of changed for me about that time. All of my friends, all of my community, everything changed. I went to a new city, a new place where I had to identify and create a whole new set of friends. And it was during that time that uh, I had this observation that would change my life. Everything was being reoriented, and I had this observation that it was awfully convenient that the faith that I said was exclusive happened to be the one that I was raised in thought really challenged me. I worked through that about that time. I remember being troubled by the idea that it was awfully convenient that I I had proximity to the faith that I thought was exclusive. I believed, I was taught, and I still believe that Jesus was, as Michael said, the way, the truth, and the life. And no man come to the Father but through Him. But I remember thinking, what about those children that were raised in Mormon homes, or Muslim homes, or Jewish homes, or secular homes even? What about them? They all uh, believe that their faith is exclusive in some way, shape, or form as well. And so how could I be certain that Christianity was the truth? I was really working through it in that time. And could I even be certain? Do the agnostics have it right that God can't even be known? Well, I knew early on in that quest, in that study, I knew early on that I needed to study Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Nathan, you you made it a foregone conclusion that you were going to be a a Christian when you started with Jesus. But it was a very deliberate choice for me at that time. Because I knew that the whole world does something with Jesus. The whole world does something with Jesus, right? Islam and Judaism regard Him as prominent in their faith. Eastern and secular thinkers uh, esteem His teachings. And of course, He's the center of Christianity. And friends, that's the overwhelming majority of the world right there. And so whatever it is we believe about God and about the world, we have to study Jesus. We have to think deeply about Him 
in order to understand our world. See, to, to neglect Jesus or to study Him lightly is to be frivolous about our conclusions about God and about His activity in the world. We must study Him. If we are, uh, if we are going to not be blown about by every wind of doctrine that each generation believes and instead be rooted in the truth, we're going to have to seriously study Jesus. He's changed the world. That is an undeniable fact. And that, friends, is the great privilege that we have before us as we begin our study in Luke's Gospel. To study Jesus. So you will see right from the beginning that Luke takes seriously our doubts, our fears, our questions. And as a historian of the highest rate, he weighs out all of the evidence so that we can be certain that Jesus Christ is, as Michael, who said He was, the way and the truth and the life. And that no man may come to God except through Him. And so we've entitled this series, King and Kingdom, because that's what the book of Luke is about. Luke is helping us see the accomplishment of Christ as the King of the Kingdom of God. That's what he's trying to do. So to know Jesus as King is to know the Kingdom that God made us to live inside of and enjoy forever. And likewise, friends, the opposite is true. To not know Christ as King is to be outside of His Kingdom. And so, believer or unbeliever alike, Christian or non-Christian, give yourself to this long study that we will have in Luke. Give yourself to it. Be here every single week. And if for some reason you can't be here, go back listen online. Make sure and be part of community groups. Have conversations about them because to know Christ, He is the center of the world and you have to think deeply about Him. And that's what we're going to do over the course of our study uh, through Luke. And so let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? Let me set the book up for us. Uh, the book of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, thus the length of this series. Uh, the Gospel according to Luke is so named because a man by the name of Luke wrote it some 25 to 40 years after Jesus' ministry on the earth. Now that timeline, guys, is important. I think I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. Luke was a frequent traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So some say that Luke, this is sort of Paul's account of the Gospel. And so Luke, we know, was that traveling companion. We read about him in Colossians chapter 4, verses 14, in verse 14. And he says there, or Paul says there, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so we find that Luke is popping up in numerous places without, uh, throughout Paul's missionary journeys. We read about him frequently in the book of Acts, which is the other book that Luke wrote. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts are sort of volume 1 and volume 2 of the story of Christ. Uh, and they serve as a sign of a sort of act one and act two, if you will. The book of Luke, as we will see, is about Jesus as the time before his birth, or the, yeah, the time before his birth, his ministry afterwards, his death, burial, resurrection. And then the book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel in the church throughout the nations. And so in Acts, we learn about all of these things coming together. Now, when we look at the book of Acts, you should know that there's five movements to this book. You don't need to memorize them. If you want to write them down, that's fine. But you don't need to memorize them. Just know that they're there. Five movements in the book of Luke. The first is the first couple chapters. Chapters 1 and 2. Where There we see the preface and the introduction of this guy named John that we'll think about next week. And Jesus. The preface and the introduction. Second movement is chapter 3. All the way to the midway through point through chapter 4. This is Jesus' preparation for ministry. The third movement in Luke's book is midway through chapter 4 down to the end of chapter 9. This is his Galilean, Jesus' Galilean ministry. A small area where he's going to do a lot of ministry. And then the fourth movement is from the end of chapter 9 down to the end of chapter 19. And this is the journey to Jerusalem. The center is getting us to, getting us on the way to the cross. 
And then the final movement of Luke is in chapter 19, verse 45 to 24, where here we read about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Now, as to why Luke is writing the book, why is he doing all this in the first place? That leads us to our passage for today. So go ahead and take a look at it. Luke chapter one, verses one to four. Here's what that says. This is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And the first thing I want you to take a notice of is that word accomplished. You see it there in verse 1? Christianity, friends, is not like other world religions that have a holy book that kind of give you a bunch of instructions that say, all right, you do these instructions good enough, and then God will hopefully love you and you will then be saved. That is not the way the Bible works. That's not the way Christianity works. Christianity is built upon news, not instructions. Grace, not mere religion. It's important that you understand that. It's about what has been accomplished in Christ. So it has been my experience that most of the people that I talk to in the streets of D.C. that are not Christians, I have found that most of them reject the gospel that I myself as a Christian don't believe in. One of the things that we did in the first few years of Restoration Church is we would go out into the streets of D.C. and we would do these surveys, just asking questions, trying to see what people believe, trying to see what they believed, we believe as Christians. It was an interesting time that we did this. And, and the majority of those that were not Christians, that didn't claim to be Christians, the majority of them, when they had to describe what they thought we believed, they would say something like, well, you believe that you need to believe on Jesus and do good works, and then you go to heaven. And of course, they were right to say that we need to believe on Jesus, but they made a critical mistake with the and. Right? Jesus, friends, accomplishes salvation. He doesn't make salvation possible for those who do enough good things. He accomplishes it. And so Luke is writing about all that has been accomplished. That's what it says, right? And that's going to be clear as we move through this book. Luke writes about Christ the King because Christ the King accomplishes salvation. He accomplishes a kingdom. Luke doesn't understand Jesus to make a kingdom possible. No, he understands that Jesus has accomplished it. More on that at the end. But the second thing I want you to notice there is the carefulness of Luke. You see that in the first four verses. Notice the carefulness of Luke. Luke says that there have been many that have compiled a narrative of what Jesus accomplished among us. And so it seemed good for Luke to compile a narrative of Christ for Theophilus. Now that name Theophilus, that name means friend of God or lover of God. So for that reason, some believe that Theophilus represents all lovers of God or all friends of God. And then there are other scholars that say that, no, he's writing to this most excellent, this man in high position. Uh, it's a specific person. But in either case, we can be sure that this account by Luke is carefully constructed because, look at verse 3, he's followed it closely for some time, this accomplishment of Christ. He's followed it closely. Secondly, we see that he's followed, followed it closely by interacting with witnesses. You see that there? Witnesses. These are people that saw all these events happen. And then thirdly, by interacting with people that are ministers of the Word. He's talking to them. So he's talking to people that have been changed by Jesus and teach Jesus as the King of the Kingdom. 
And Luke is taking all of this information and he's carefully writing an orderly account. He's not writing a disorderly account. He's not just sort of happenstancely writing this account. It's not as though he's typing out a text message while he's watching friends, right? Like he's not, it's not what's happening, right? He's very, very careful as he's writing this out. So imagine the environment would be more akin to like a college research paper of sorts where he's telling this story. He's doing his due diligence and then he's carefully documenting it in order to give Theophilus this certainty about the king and the kingdom. And so this carefulness of Luke gives us another good opportunity to dispel another misunderstanding about Christianity. There have been many that have led people to believe that Christianity wants you to check your brains at the door. Don't think. We are opposed to science. Those kinds of things. Faith, just have faith, means You know, it's just a leap in the dark. We don't even really know. Friends, that is simply not true. That is simply not the case of Christianity. This text right here, verses 1-4, to shows us that that's not the case. And also, friends, just a cursory understanding, a cursory view of history reveals that Christianity takes seriously our minds and deep thinking. But it was Christians that founded universities. It was Christians that founded hospitals. It was Christians that have led the way in science and philosophy. So many don't know that it was Isaac Newton. He wrote more commentaries on the Bible than he did on science. Many people don't know that it was Galileo and Kepler's faith in God that led them to be some of the greatest astrologists that the world has ever known. Many don't know that it was John Ray who was a Christian that was trying to take the information of species and bring definitions in the realm of botany. And of course, any basic philosophy class would be incomplete without studying Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm and Bacon and Dostoevsky and Pascal. All of these guys engaged in philosophy, listen, because of their faith in Christ. In fact, if you go and study anywhere where churches have been planted, this is true, go study anywhere churches have been started, Christian churches have been started, you'll see that literacy rates rise. Why would that be? Because pastors, because churches want their people to open up the Bible and read it so that they would know and enjoy God forever. The Bible commands us even to love God with our minds. And so it is no surprise that Luke is so careful in writing his narrative here. He wants to engage the heart and the mind to have a faith that is informed. He wants us to compel, he wants to compel us to believe and he wants to give us reasons to believe. But you should know, friends, that Luke was not one of the disciples of Christ. So in order to confidently relay the truth, Luke has interviewed all these different people to construct this truthful and orderly account. So evidently, he's spoken to Zechariah or his wife Elizabeth in order to get their account. Evidently, he's spoken to Mary as he's spoken to her and learned about her experiences. Uh, We know that he either spoke to Mary or maybe those shepherds specifically about their experiences on the night of the birth of Christ. And of course, he's talking to the disciples, Luke is. He's carefully compiling all of this information to tell the truth about the king and the kingdom because he wants us to be certain that it's true. Now, some of you, though, may be thinking, well, Nathan, if he carefully has compiled the story, it's awfully convenient that he's speaking to Christians. Yes, true, that may be true. That may be true, but first off, just because he's talking to Christians that have been changed doesn't make it untrue. But also, I would add quickly, while it may be true that Luke is carefully compiling his account from Christians, he's doing it in a way that's historically verifiable. 
So when you think about false religions, of say Mormonism or Islam, both the founders of these religions claim to have been given private messages from God that would make it unable to see if it could be historically verified. But that is not the case with Christianity in general or Luke specifically. Christianity welcomes challenges and it has stood the test of time. So for instance, as I said earlier, Luke is writing some 25 to 40 years after Christ's ascension. And so he is squarely inside the same generation of those that lived in the midst of these events. And therefore, they could have easily been refuted by this guy that's writing this book that is going to be widely read. Same generation. They're able to refute it easily. So I'll give you an example of this. If I were to stand up here and say, in 1984, in the state of Virginia, the governor at that time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? There are people in this room that go, no way, man, I was alive. I know that's not true. Right? There would be all kinds of people that would quickly refute that truth. But if I were to stand up here and say, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger or some other guy was governor of Virginia and during the time of the American Revolution, nobody in the room would really know. We'd have to go study and see if that was true. So because he's writing in the same generation, where he's able to see that this is actually faithful and reliable. We also see other historical aspects to his veracity of history. Just look down there in verse 5. We'll look at this next week. In Luke 1, 5, we see Luke mark the time of events as in the days of Herod of Judea. In Luke 2, 1 to 2, we read of this census that the whole Roman Empire was taking. And in Luke 3, 1 to 2, this is probably the best one, we get tons of information about the events and the people that were leading at this time. Listen to this read, 3, 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Some of you are going, my goodness, how'd you do that, Nathan? God's grace. Point is, if you're making this stuff up, if you're trying to engender a false religion, you don't do that. Because it's so easy to look into one of those guys or two of those guys and go, that guy was not reigning then. And yet what we find is that all of these people are reigning just in the time of and in the places that Luke says that they are. So he's doing it in a way. If he's making this stuff up, you don't write history like this. You don't write books like this because it can be so easily seen. But if he's writing in such a way so as to engender, so as to encourage faith, this is how you write, right? So as to make it as clear as possible that this stuff is actually true. And I should quickly add right here, historians of all stripes have proven Luke's history is spot on. In fact, there has been plenty of historians that have tried to debunk Luke's history uh, only to find that it was true. There's this guy by the name of uh, Sir Walter, uh, sorry, Sir William Ramsey, and he was so convinced that Luke was wrong, that it couldn't be true, that he went in the 1800s to try to study all of these different places so as to show that Luke's history was all wrong. And yet what he found after years of studying was that Luke's history was exactly right. And he completely reversed his position. And he's quoted as saying, Ramsey is, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. Another scholar by the name of E.M. Blakelock, who was a professor of classics at Oxford University, said of Luke, quote, Luke is a consummate historian to be ranked in his own right with the great writers of the Greek. And so if you're going to engineer a new religion that is false, you don't do it this way. 
You don't write with a kind of historical specificity like Luke does unless Luke is writing what is true. And he wants to be as clear as he can to encourage trust. And so we've seen so far that Luke is engaging eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. He's carefully compiling an orderly account. He's making it in such a way as to make it historically verifiable. And also we see that he's doing it in such a way as to be biblically verifiable. He spoke to eyewitnesses, he did history, and he spoke to ministers of the Word, it says. You're going to see this in the weeks to come, but this guy Simeon, Pharisees, the Sadducees, Caiaphas, other leaders of the synagogues, not to mention the common Jewish resident who sat under the teaching of the Bible for decades. All of them would have been able to verify that what Jesus taught, what he says Jesus taught, or what Luke taught, they would have been easily able to open up their Bibles or at least go to the local synagogue and show that what Luke was writing about the Bible was wrong. Luke cites the Old Testament 58 times. If he's not speaking the truth about the Old Testament, then you don't write that. You don't quote those Old Testament verses. If there's just one or two or three misunderstandings of the Old Testament, then it would have completely debunked Luke's gospel. Now, some of you are going, yeah, but Nathan, don't the religious leaders like argue with Jesus? Well, yes, they argue with Jesus about his interpretation of things. But first off, Luke doesn't hide it. Secondly, they're not arguing about the truth of what Luke is saying. They're arguing about its application to Jesus as the fulfillment. That's the difference. And again, if Luke was compiling his narrative in such a way as to tell a lie, to get Theophilus to believe a lie... It would be foolish to include so many verses from the Bible that could easily be proven or misunderstood or misapplied. But again, we find that what Luke is doing is he's putting plenty of verses in the Bible to encourage us to scour the Scriptures that they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so, so Luke is writing in such a way that is historically verifiable. He's writing in such a way that's biblically verifiable. He's carefully interviewing people, putting this document together But some of you might say, the skeptics in the room might say, okay, Nathan, all of that may be the case, but this Bible in our hands has been so corrupted. Right? I mean, this stuff happened 2,000 years ago. And we don't have the original manuscripts that Luke wrote on. And it's been translated so many times. It can't be reliable. Well, friend, that's a valid point, valid question. Some of you are familiar with the game, the telephone game. You ever played that when you were kids? You all know that one? Right? You whisper something in somebody's ear. And it goes to the next one and the next one and the next one. By the time it gets around to the other side, what? The whole message is lost. That's basically what is being claimed by some. That this document, this Bible that we're reading is unreliable. And so have we lost the message of Luke over the course of years? Well, the answer, friends, is a a clear and sincere no for one main reason. The books that now comprise what we know as the New Testament were seen by the church as the words of God. The words of God. In other words, they were understood to be God's words to men. They were not, nor are they, understood to be men's word about God. They were understood to be God's word to men. And so Christians were carefully preserving their message. God never promised to preserve the manuscripts of the original letters. But He did promise that His word is would endure. And that, friends, is what is endured. It's sitting right in front of you. His word has been endured. And so the Bibles in front of us are the words of God to men. None of them have been lost because the church treasured and protected those words, which is why we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts from antiquity that we can cross-check and see the truth. I'll give you another example of this. Imagine if we were to lose the original manuscript of the Declaration of Independence right down the street. 
Right? It's a very important document to our nation. What if we were to lose that? We would be easily able to construct all kinds of other things, go to other places, from speeches to history to all kinds of translations of that document, document, and we would be able to piece together what the truth of the Declaration of Independence said. Well, friend, if that is true about a governmental, historical, man-made document, how much more God's words to men? Might we be careful to preserve its message? And so from the church fathers to transcriptions to other documents from antiquity, we are able to hold in our hands a Bible that is confidently understood to be the Word of God. That nothing has been lost because Christians have been so careful with it. Because God has been careful to preserve His words. And so friends, if you say that Luke is unreliable as a document, you have to then get rid of all that you believe about Alexander the Great, Plato, Socrates, all these guys from antiquity because we have far less information of them. So, when Luke says that he has closely followed all things concerning the accomplishment of Christ, closely involved uh, eyewitnesses, ministers of the words, we seek that Luke is going out of his way to say, you can trust this account. You can trust these words. We can hear Luke saying, I've spoken to people. I've carefully compiled an account, weighed the evidence. This account is historically, biblically verifiable. But we need to ask the question, why? Why did he put it down? Why did he write it in the first place? Why is he going to so much trouble to pass these words of God to us? Why is he writing? We've already nodded at it, but take a look at verse 4. There's our answer. Why is he putting all this down? So that you, Theophilus, so that we, Restoration Church, may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So that you would have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught about the king and the kingdom. That word certainty there in the Greek means security. Certainty means security. You would have security about what you have been taught about the king and his kingdom. So for instance, I boarded a plane on Tuesday to fly to Washington, D.C. And the reason I did was because I was certain that it would be able to get me home. I would not have gotten on that plane if I was, if I was lacked certainty that it would be able to do it. But because I did, I knew that I had certainty. That's why I got on the plane. That's why Luke is writing. He wants to give us certainty regarding the things that we have been taught about Christ and about His kingdom. I think a lot of us in this room are a lot like this Theophilus, aren't we? We're a lot like him. We've all been taught about the king and the kingdom. Many of us. Maybe all of us. We've been taught about Jesus. We've been taught about Bible. We've taught about gospel. You heard Monica's testimony this morning. It was exactly that. Some of us, many of us have been baptized just like these brothers and sisters have. We've testified to our faith. But I wonder how many of you are certain about what you say you believe about Jesus. How many of you would say that? Many of us here have believed, we say that we believe, but are we certain? See, if we are being honest, a good portion of us might not be prepared to say, yes, I'm certain about what I believe. I'm certain about what I've been taught. Because let's just be real honest for a second, right? At the heart of our faith is that there was this man it was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. Hello, that's the most amazing thing. Was crucified as a substitution for sins, buried and rose from the dead on the third day, ascended and is coming back on a white horse to judge the living and the dead. 
Not exactly the kind of stuff that's easily certain about, right? It's hard. But even more than that, even if we were certain about those doctrinal truths, we aren't often certain about ourselves, are we? Many of you would say, I believe that Jesus is the Lord. I believe that He made a sacrifice for sin. I believe that He was uh, buried. He resurrected. He's coming again. But I'm not real sure if I'm one of His people. I struggle with that. Maybe that would be you. And if all of this is not enough, we also live in a time and a place where certainty is frowned upon. This is especially true when it comes to matters of religion. So to be certain about God, to be certain about man, to be certain about Jesus, to be certain about sexuality, to be certain about gender, to be certain about salvation, to be certain about the church. Friends, to be certain about those things is to oppose the spirit of the age. The virtuous today are to be open-minded, to be tolerant. If we are too certain about the teachings of the Bible, we'll easily be labeled judgmental, bigoted, narrow-minded, or often on the wrong side of history. It's hard to be certain about the things that we have been taught. But in this city, this day, this time, it's made even more difficult because we're concerned about being left behind. About being seen a certain way. About being forgotten. About being irrelevant. About being backwards. About losing our jobs for saying things that we're certain about. And so between the fantastical claims of Christ, the doubts, the fears, the struggles of our own sin, the kind of spiritual bullying we face in our lives in 21st century America, it's hard to be certain about the things we have been taught, isn't it? But listen, that's why Luke wrote this. Do you see it? That's so encouraging. That's why he wrote. So as to make us certain. Think about this, guys. Luke is writing at a time when Christians are being killed left and right for their certainty. And he still not only writes it, but he is certain about it. He's writing at a time when I'm sure he himself was struggling with his own sin. I'm sure that he's writing these amazing testimonies because he knows that they're fantastical. But he not only believes them, he's certain about them. And he wants you to be certain about them as well. That's why he's writing. He wants us to be certain. And so this passage makes crystal clear that God has made provision for your, for our lack of certainty regarding the things that we have been taught. He's given us historical veracity. He's given us biblical veracity. He's actually addressed these things with great specificity. But he does it, friends, with two more ways. Two more ways that actually increases our security, our confidence in what we have been taught. We've already thought about it, but it bears mentioning at this critical point in the passage. God has made provision for your doubts, for your fears, for your struggles. How? How has He made provision for them to give you security, to give you certainty? By pointing you to the accomplishment of Christ for salvation. Look again at verse 1. This is a narrative that is meant to give certainty to you regarding Jesus' accomplishment. Not yours. Not mine. Your. He's given certainty that Jesus has accomplished salvation. Not in what we need to accomplish, in the certainty of what Jesus has accomplished. So what Luke wants to do is highlight the greatness of the glory of Christ. This is what he's doing. Highlight the greatness of the glory of Christ to fulfill what the law requires so that you, beloved, that struggles with doubt, that struggles with sin, that freezes in fear, might be raised to walk in newness of life. That's why he's writing. 
So that you who struggles with uncertainty might be certain that salvation is is possible. Not because of yourself, but because of Jesus. The one that accomplishes salvation. We can be certain of what we have been taught because of who fulfills the teaching. Let me show you how. What I'm going to do, go ahead and turn to the back of the book, book, Luke 24. I'm about to do, guys, like the cardinal sin of storytelling. Luke 24. Look at verse 44. We'll get here, ready for this, at the end of 2020. What? Yes. 55 long, wonderful, glorious sermons to study Jesus. What a great privilege. Listen to what he does. This is the end of the story. He's saying at the beginning, I'm writing so that you might be certain about the accomplishment of Christ. And then here's the end. Luke 24, Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. But guys, that's the Old Testament. That's all he just said. Law, prophets, writings. Law, that's the Old Testament. Must be fulfilled. Notice, what does it say? Everything written about who? About him. About Jesus. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. You see, Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of salvation, the fulfillment of the law. That's where Luke is going. And so we can be certain about the things that we have been taught. That is, we can be secure in what we've been taught. Why? Because Christ has accomplished them on your behalf. He has fulfilled them, not us. Not us. And so, beloved, you have no reason to be certain if Jesus did not accomplish salvation. You would have no reason at all to be certain of salvation. You have no reason to ever be certain if the evaluation of your salvation centers or even majors upon you. No reason to be certain. If in some way, in the mixture of salvation, it majors on you. But, if you know and understand that salvation is accomplished in Christ, then you have every reason to be certain. Because Christ never fails. Never fails. We have every reason to be confident in Him. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes people ask, well, like, if you died tonight, what would happen? What would you say to God? Why you should come into the kingdom? You know what I would say? I would say, here's my answer. If God, I, I die today, I go to be with, I go up to God, I'm standing in for the judgment seat, and God says, Nathan, why should I let you in? My answer is, you shouldn't. But I trust Jesus. And by His blood, His atonement, His accomplishment, not mine, because I failed too much. I trust Him to let me in. That's our confidence. That's our certainty. That's our security, friends. We trust Him to do it. See, when this is, guys, this is, this is kind of going back to my introduction. This is why I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. This is the conclusion that I came to. When I began to evaluate myself, I found in myself complete moral bankruptcy. And then I started to study Jesus. I started to look at Him. And when I studied Jesus, when I got my eyes off of myself and I got my eyes off of what the world teaches 
And I started to study Jesus, what Jesus said of himself, what Jesus did, what Jesus didn't do, these kinds of things. And I saw that he fulfilled them as is evidenced by his resurrection. That's when I trusted him for my salvation at 19 and I was baptized. I have certainty in him, not in myself. Jesus was and is the only one to not only teach what was needed to be done, but Jesus accomplished what needed to be done on my behalf in love. So friends, this is the good news of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. The one that all of us should have lived, but none of us have lived. And He was crucified on that cross. This is where Luke is going. Crucified on that cross so that all that trust Him, all that believe Him, His innocence, His righteousness gets transferred to us that believe. Is that amazing? His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And we know that that sacrifice was received by the Father because He resurrected again from the, on the third day. And so all those that trust Him, hope in Him, believe in Him, though we are train wrecks personally, Jesus is our certainty. He's our hope. He's our great reward. That's why we sing about Him every single week. We have uh, numerous people that are not Christians will come in every single time. It's not, well, most times. It's not the preaching that they comment on. Almost every time they'll say, man, I love how y'all sing. Why? Because we have something to sing about. Christ has accomplished our salvation. We can be certain in Him, free in Him. You heard Monica talk about this. Our identity is in Him. It's not in ourselves. He accomplished it all. All of us are bankrupt apart from Christ, but he that believes finds certainty, salvation in him. And so when we stop looking to Jesus as merely our example, as merely a good teacher, when we start stop seeing Jesus as merely a possibility for salvation, like other religious leaders teach, but instead we begin to see Jesus as the, see Jesus as the perfection of our salvation, you can be saved. You can be saved. And so now I am certain about what I have been taught, not because of anything in myself, not because I perform better, but because Jesus is who He said He was. The resurrection proves that. This Word proves that. He taught the truth. He lived the truth. He died to accomplish the truth for all that believe. And that gives us security in the things that we've been taught about God. It gives us security because, as I preached a couple weeks ago, it means that we can confess our sins. We can confess our struggles. We can confess our doubts. We can confess our fears and still be welcomed home because it's Jesus that brings us in. It's not us. Jesus secures us. That's the whole point of Luke's Gospel. He fulfilled what the law demanded at the cost of Himself so that we might be secure. And so our lives are built upon the rock of Christ Jesus. They are not built on the shifting sand of this world, but on Jesus. We can stand because we trust Him to stand in our place. We are weak. He's strong. We're secure in Him. And so we can be certain about the things that we have been taught because Jesus has accomplished the truth on our behalf at the cost of Him. You're going to see that week after week as we walk through the passage. And there's one more thing, very briefly, that we see in here that can also give us certainty regarding what we have been taught. There's one more reason why we have reason to be certain from this passage that what we have been taught is true in securing. It's really easy to miss, but guys, it's right there in front of you. Look at verse 4. By the way, that was really cool. I said verse 4 and all of you looked down. That's what you're supposed to do. Praise the Lord. I love that. Man, I get to see so much stuff up here that's amazing. Anyway, one more reason 
God knows the struggles that we face. He knows the struggles that we face. He knows those difficulties. He wants us to have certainty by looking to Jesus and the accomplishment of His salvation. And we can be certain what we have been taught because of the mere presence of this verse. I have been having a blast thinking about that for the past like three weeks. God didn't have to put this verse in the Bible. He didn't have to give you one gospel, much less two, three, or four. Nor did He have to put this sentence in the Bible. Namely, that He is aware of the fact that not only you will be taught, but you're going to have some uncertainty about it. And He wants you to be secure. Isn't that a great picture of the heart of God? That He's like that. Because He put this verse in there, because He put this book in here, it's evidence that He loves us. That He's made provision for our uncertainties. That He knew that they would be hard to trust Him. Isn't that a wonderful testimony about God? You're going to see this, guys, as we walk through the book of Luke, time and again, God's mercy to doubting believers. Next week, you'll see this. Zechariah, this great holy man, high priest, doubts, dude can't talk. Right. Second, you'll then you'll see John the baptizer. Here's the guy. Jesus calls him the greatest prophet that has ever lived. And he's sitting in prison and he's going. Not sure this is the guy. Can you guys run after there to make sure Jesus is the guy? Not sure. He talks to the we're going to see all kinds of testimonies of the disciples. Man, these guys are thick headed dudes just like me. Right. They're seeing Jesus teach with authority. They're seeing healings there. He's they're watching Jesus raise people from the dead and they're still like. I'm not, I'm not really sure. And why does God put that stuff in the Bible? Again, if you're making it up, you don't put that in there. He puts it in the Bible to show, one, that we need to have faith to believe. Yes. But also, He puts it in there because He knows we're just like Him. He makes provision for our uncertainty because He loves us. Just by having this verse here shows that he's trustworthy. We can believe the character of God. These passages reveal the heart of a heavenly father that makes provision for weak and wounded sinners that are prone to wander, prone to doubt. He wants you, beloved, to not only believe, but he wants you to love. He wants you to trust him. And the presence of these lines reveal that you can love him and you can trust him, that you can be certain of him. Because He makes provision for your uncertainties. Aren't you glad that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Praise God that He has, first and foremost. But also, He told us, hey y'all, this is going to be hard. God's so good to put that in the Bible. The reality of the gospel is balm to our souls and it's made even sweeter by the knowledge that he wrote that down and preserved it for us in advance so as to give comfort in the days of trouble. So as to give us certainty when we are not certain. I love that God is like that. Do you? Isn't that great? He makes provision for our uncertainties. And so, Theophilus, that's you. Lovers of God, as we begin this meditation on Luke's gospel, you can pray for me as I preach this to you week after week. Pray for the others that will come and preach to you. Pray for yourselves that you would be certain regarding what you have been taught here. Go to community groups. Pray for them. Guys, listen. Pray for those that are not here that over the course of the next 55 sermons 
will hear. They're not here yet, but they're going to be here. Pray for them too. So that, here's your prayer, that they, that you, that we might be certain that Christ has accomplished our salvation. And we can trust Him and give the whole of our lives to Him no matter what may come. That we might spread the good news of this gospel and have to tear these walls down to get more folks in here and plant more churches so that Christ would be glorified in War 3 of Washington, D.C. and around the world. May we do it for the sake of His glory and our good. You can be certain, beloved. And friend, if you do not yet believe, you too can be certain. Maybe over the course of this sermon, you did. And if that's you, I'm going to be standing right there. Come talk to me about it. God's a good God. He's made provision for us. He's made it clear to us in His Word. We can be certain. We can be secure. Trust Jesus. Don't trust yourself. You're a faithful God. You show us the heart of a loving Father that makes provisions for our uncertainty. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this sentence. But most of all, thank you for Jesus. He is our hope. He has accomplished salvation. And may we have rock-solid certainty in Him. Become hell or high water, may we stand on the rock declaring the goodness of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In His name we pray.